Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. It is Monday, April the 11th, 2022. It's the Monday of Holy Week. If you are not already engaged with us in reading through the Bible during Holy Week, I heartily invite you to do so at MyFaithRadio.com. Topping, um, I, I don't know if it's topping the news for lots of people. It's topping the news for a lot of people, though, and that is the news out of the Masters. The Masters is um, is a golf tournament, for those of you who don't pay attention to such things. Um, the Masters is a big deal for a lot of people, particularly those who follow golf, and this weekend, one of the exciting things for golf followers uh, is that Tiger Woods played in the Masters. Big news that he made the cut. Um, Even bigger news that he finished. So there you go. That's all really big news. However, Scotty Scheffler is the person who you're going to want to know about going forward. And I encourage you to check out um, the write-up at sportspectrum.com. You will recognize that website. We have have talked frequently with uh, representatives from Sports Spectrum. And so I want to encourage you to check out their write-up on Scotty Scheffler's Masters Victory. Why? Well, because that's where you're going to find all the faith talk. That's where you're going to find um, what Scotty Scheffler had to say at the intersection of his faith and what happened um, at the Masters. And so I'm going to read a portion of this to you. During the press conference uh, following the Masters, according to Sports Spectrum, uh, here's their takeaway. Uh, Scotty says, the reason I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he's done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Uh, Like Meredith, that's his wife, like Meredith told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, um, I'm still going to love you and you're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. So Scotty Scheffler goes on to say, I'm trying to do this to glorify God. Uh, That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in this position. He continued to say that he felt God's presence on the course throughout the day. Um, And again, referencing his wife, Meredith, he says, Meredith always prays for peace because that's what I want to feel on the golf course, peace. I want to have fun and just feel his presence. So that's her prayer for me every day. And that's my prayer. And I really felt that today. I felt at peace. That is a great testimony. Um, and I am thankful to God that Scotty Scheffler used his opportunity at the, in his victory at the Masters to make the name of Jesus famous. And so I just wanted to celebrate that here today. So as people are talking about the Masters, I love it that the guy who won the Masters pointed to the Master. A green jacket is nice. But that's really not the covering that Scotty Scheffler is wearing. He knows that he's covered by Christ. 
So how are you and I going to move conversations today from the Masters Tournament in Augusta, Georgia, to the Master? Um, Who's going to end this week on a hill called Calvary? Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. And as we do so, let me encourage you to consider two simultaneous things that take place. So as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the things of the earth grow strangely dim. And the things of the earth come acutely into focus. We understand everything in the light of the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so at the same time that we, everything just like disappears and we just see Jesus on the cross at the same time, we see everything in the world and everyone in the world in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. Everything comes into focus, even as everything recedes from focus, as we just focus on Jesus. So that's my sort of profound thought for the day. What do you see when you look at Jesus? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Next up, we're going to talk with Linda Mental. I was tempted to say, I can't remember who we're going to talk to, and I can't remember what we're going to talk about, because one of the things we're going to talk about is why we're forgetting so many things right now. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us now, Dr. Linda Mental. You can listen to her on the Dr. Linda Mental Show, and you can find her at MyFaithRadio.com. You can also find her at DrLindaMental.com. Linda, welcome back. Hey, good morning. And I I just want to say, Carmen, that I would probably embarrass God through golf. So it's a good thing. (laughs) He would still have you covered. He would still cover you. It would be okay. That's right. But boy, (laughs) I can't do it. I can't afford it. I tried. I just couldn't get it. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, that's all right. Okay, so um, why so why are we forgetting so many things right now? I confess that this the sort of mental fogginess that everyone else seems to be experiencing, I have experienced as well. I thought it was because of menopause. It might be because we are living in COVID days. That could be an influence, but it's so interesting because one of my um, colleagues, who's a family medicine doc, she, you know, she had a conversation with me the other day, and she just stopped in the middle of the conversation and said, "What is wrong with me? Like I can't remember anything. Like we're in the middle of a conversation, and she's like, things that she normally would know, you know, and she's just stopping, and she's like, what is wrong? And I thought, well, you know, there's a lot going on here. We, it's like you said, we're out of the pandemic, we still we're coming out of the pandemic. There's still all these variants and things happening. But, you know, we think that there could be some brain fog associated with that, some cognitive. I've been reading some articles in neurology about what did the COVID um, virus do in terms of the brain? And is there some fog that kind of lingers? And we just don't know at this point with the way it's presented and so many of these variants and the way, you know, it hits different people. But there's also a couple of other things that I really want us to think about. And that is, you know, one of the things is change. 
And change is can be a really good thing if you you know you get a new job or you have a, a wedding in your family, you know there's a birth of a new child. But even when it's positive, change goes on the stress scale. And it's because in one way we need some new things because novelty is good for the brain. So that's sometimes good. It kind of wakes the brain up and it gets it more aroused. But on the other hand, if you have a lot of change at one time, it really can be stressful, even when it's positive change, because the brain has to keep shifting from thing to thing, and nothing is real familiar when there's lots of change going on. I've worked in organizations where they change leadership and they change technology and they change the way they're doing things, and people are just kind of like, oh my gosh, like what else am I gonna have to learn that's new at this moment that my brain can't handle? So I think if we think of all the stress that we've been under with the pandemic and, you know, then we hear this, these war, you know, stories almost every day in Ukraine. And, you know, Carmen, I have five medical students here in our school whose parents are missionaries. And in the middle of uh, one of the exams that I was giving, his parents were getting out of, you know, trying to get out of Russia. They were, they've been missionaries for 30 years. It was very serious. And I mean, he couldn't think for about three days because he was so stressed about whether his parents were going to get out. And then they, they did thankfully get out and they're okay. But all this stress and change, and then, you know, the stress of school and exams and it just overwhelms the brain. And that's the problem is, and, and I think you add technology in there where we're constantly shifting back and forth in our head with multitasking, we're on this device and then somebody calls us, then we're doing that, paying attention to the kids. It's just the brain gets a little bit overwhelmed and is on overdrive sometimes. And then you just blink out because it's just too much. So maybe one of the things we need to learn um, to do is to pause, even in our conversations, you know, face-to-face with other people and just allow there to be a moment of grace, allowing that other person to catch up or reset. I think that part of our expectation, Linda, is that even in conversation or at the checkout line or, I mean, you know, everywhere in every environment, that things are going to move at the like speed of light. And part of that is because we have so many things on our list. Like I got to get all this done. And in order to get all this done, I got to have this person move at this speed. And that means I got to move at this speed. Right. And we're like, we're so frenetic. So I think that for me, that's part of it as well. Well, yeah, and that that is, you know, and we're used to things being quick, right? Because of the computers and the internet and fast delivery and everything is at the touch of a finger now. So we're kind of used to that. And you're right, it does make this expectation. And I think a lot of people then worry, oh my gosh, am I, you know, is it menopause? Am I getting dementia? Is there something wrong with me? Do I have a psychological issue? Because that's one of the signs. There's, there is, there are conditions where you look at the way somebody just forgets something in the middle of a sentence and you think, oh, that's, that's not good. But it is, we have to slow down. And the worst thing you can do is just try to force it, you know, go, okay, what's wrong? What's wrong? I got to remember. I got to remember what's wrong with me. I got to get this, you know, you're right. If you just take a, a deep breath and you pause a little bit. And I think, Carmen, that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Bible talks about meditating on the Lord, slowing down, focusing our, our minds on Christ. I mean, that's what Christian mindfulness is. It's it's taking a deep breath, focusing on Christ, who he is, what he does for us. And when you do that and you put your mind on Christ, we know that the scripture tells us 
that's going to keep us in a perfect peace. So that slowing down, that meditating, paying attention to the moment, stop multitasking everything. Like when you're in a conversation with someone, put down your device, don't look at it. Just look at the person in the eyes and give them your attention and relax a little bit. And you're right, mm -hmm. just slow down. That would help a lot. Give the brain a rest. I'm reminded of Jesus who would often say things like, do you see this woman? Or he would, mm -hmm. um, you know, he would intentionally not just slow down, but stop and, and intently um, take into account the person right in front of him. So that's a good, good reminder for us this week as well. We're going to take a very brief pause. Dr. Linda Mental uh, is going to share with us after a, a br very brief break, 10 myths that prevent you from asking for help. What do you need help with? What's preventing you from asking for help? We're going to talk about those 10 myths up next. I cast my mind to Calvary with Jesus and Continuing our conversation with Dr. Linda Mental, you can listen to her on the Dr. Linda Mental Show here on the Faith Radio Network. You can also find her at drlindamental.com. That's where I found this article, 10 Myths that prevent you from asking for help. Linda, walk us through this. Hey, and I hope I, I just realized that I always sing with your music in the break. I hope you can't hear me when you come back. I'm singing. Uh -huh. the, okay. uh, you'll have to listen. You'll have to listen uh, later and find out. No, no, we can't hear you. No. Sing away. Sing away. I know I love the music, so I just kind of get lost in it. All right. So I put 10 minutes on this, but I am going to also, we're going to do a show on this, Carmen, because there's just a lot we have to talk about when it comes to getting help for mental health. And so on the blog I'll put on Faith Radio, I'm going to add a couple of things. One of them I want to start with, because it's real important to um, our audience, is just because you go to a therapist does not mean you have a lack of faith. So I want to get that right out there, because often when Christian patients come in to see me, they're very embarrassed. They don't think they should be there. Sometimes someone in their family has said to them, you don't need a therapist. You just need Jesus. Well, we all need Jesus. That's that's true. But you wouldn't say to somebody with cancer, don't go to a medical doctor because you just need Jesus. Can Jesus heal cancer? Yes. Can Jesus touch and heal? Yes, he's a great physician. But we still use the resources that God has given us to help people and walk people through tough times. And sometimes you need another person to sit with you, to give you some perspective, and then help you incorporate what is happening in your life with your faith. So that myth of, um, I just need more faith and I don't need help, I just want to really hit that on the um, on the front end. Another one I want to I want to hit, and it's not in this article, but it will be in the in the blog for Faith Radio, is that um, sometimes people will say to me, "Well, does it matter if I see a Christian as long as the person's just competent?" And you know, I used to say, possibly, depending on the pr the problem, maybe there isn't anybody in your area who knows how to deal with certain things, um, but. I'm pretty strong on the fact that you need to find someone with a Christian viewpoint, a Christian worldview, because if you're a Christian and you're coming in and mental health involves a lot of your thoughts and your beliefs and the assumptions that you make, you really need somebody who can sit with you and work with you through your worldview. Uh, something like as, as, as simple as marriage therapy, 
you know, non-Christians, a lot of secular marriage therapists feel like, well, it's a contract. And if it doesn't work out, you know, just go on to the next person and just break the contract. You don't like each other. You have reasons. But a Christian therapist, hopefully a marital therapist, and I'm a, I'm a couples therapist, you know, we, we talk very seriously at the beginning that marriage is a covenant. It's an unbreakable promise. And while there are times when divorce may happen for things like significant abuse and abandonment and things, generally speaking, we try to work on everything and reconcile a couple. And I think that's very different than a lot of my secular counterparts. So that's another myth that you want to make sure that, yes, you can get help from a secular person. And if you're very strong in your faith and you can filter what they're saying through the Bible, through the, the you know Christian principles, uh, you might be okay. But I do think it matters. And I do think because there are so many good Christian therapists out there that it would be worth finding one. Okay. Help us get over the, I'll just call it like the embarrassment hump. Yeah, such a stigma on mental health. And I, I keep thinking about this because I've been in so many small groups in my life and, you know, people are hurting and they're just mm-hmm. afraid to talk about it. And I think part of it is because they don't trust people to keep the boundaries, you know, because you go into a small group and you say something, and, you know, somebody in that group goes out and says, oh, this is what I heard in my small group, which is called gossip, which we're not supposed to do. So I think there's some trust issues and some boundary issues sometimes that keep people But there's just this stigma that somehow, and it may be very deeply rooted in the American way that I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I have to figure this out myself. I think also because there's so much self-help on the internet that people think, well, I'm just going to try to do it in my own private setting and figure it out. Now, if you can do that with some self-help materials that are on the internet, good for you. But when it comes to problems like bipolar disorder and some very significant issues, um, I think you do need a professional therapist and you really do need to get in there and make sure that you're getting the help that you need by trained people who know what they're doing and can direct you and make your life so much better. Uh, But that stigma is really hard. So I I encourage, I'm so grateful for Pastor Rick Warren, who was very open about his son's Mm -hmm. suicide, has done a lot in the area of mental health for the church. But we need more people, you know, talking about, you don't have to live like that. There's so much we can do to help people and get them um, going in the right direction. A lot of time it's mind renewal and looking at the things in scripture and aligning our life with those principles and those those things that God has given us that are very prescriptive. Yeah, let me encourage you if you're listening right now and um, you know maybe you've suffered a number of difficult losses. Um, maybe you have had children who have uh, determined that they are not going to follow in the faith that you espouse. Maybe you have health issues. Maybe you've developed um, anxiety we we want you to be in um, a healthy relationship with God and with yourself and with others. And often, in order to achieve that, you got to get some outside help. And so um, Dr. Linda Mental and I this morning are certainly encouraging you to um, engage with a competent professional Christian counselor, um, but also, you know, reach out to your pastor and just say, look, I, I just need some help. I need some help. Can I Can I talk with somebody about the challenges that I'm facing? Um, Because I want to live in the hope 
of the reality um, of God. And I'm just feeling very, very far from him right now. Like that's a part of this as well. So Linda, as always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We look forward to this post at myfaithradio.com. In the meantime, you can read what Linda is writing at drlindamental.com and certainly listen to the Dr. Linda Mental show. Thank you, my friend. All right. Have a great week, especially during this Holy Week. Amen. Have a wonderful Holy Week. We're going to take a break for Breakpoint. When we talk about walking with Jesus through the events of Holy Week, we recognize that this is a journey to the cross. A real man who was also really God really died on a real Roman cross on a real day in a real place on a real hill on a real cross. It really was crucifixion and it really was excruciating. But then did he really rise from the dead? Are you going to hear a literal sermon about the resurrection of Jesus Christ this coming Sunday? That may depend on where you go to church. It may depend on whether or not your pastor really preaches the literal gospel. We're going to talk with Carl Vaders next about preaching literal Easter sermons, declaring that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that really makes all the difference. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Privilege to have joining us today, Pastor Carl Vaders. He's the author of four books. He's been in pastoral pastoral ministry for almost 40 years. Um, He serves at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Orange County, California. Um, And his heart is really to help pastors of small membership churches, small congregations across the country, find the resources that they need to capitalize on the unique advantages that come with um, being in a small congregation. So, Carl, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's good to be with you. Well, I just love what you're doing. I am a lover of the small church, even though I attend now, um, you know, what would be considered a larger membership congregation. There are some really unique advantages, um, wonderful blessings to being a part of a small church. Maybe we could, I know you've, uh, you have a list of them, actually, in a piece that I read from churchleaders.com. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the things that just sort of these really unique contributions that small churches make to the larger body of Christ. Yeah, there are. And I, I want to state right up front that I this is not as opposed to big churches whatsoever. It's simply that often small churches aren't, we don't, they don't really get the attention or even the resources that they need because so much of the attention goes to the big church. And sometimes that attention is not all that welcome, quite frankly, that it, it does have a downside. But yeah, the small church does have some advantages. When you ask small church uh, people who attend small churches why they go, the first reason that is listed almost every time is some version of the pastor knows my name. Um, th- there's, there's something in a, a whole lot of folks who 
they they really want to be pastored by their pastor. They want to to be able to reach out. Uh, and there are others in larger churches, and they don't need access to the pastor. They get pastored in their small groups. As long as you're being pastored, that's what matters. But for a lot of folks, the fact that the person who's preaching on Sunday morning is also the person who baptized me, is also the person who's going to be in my small group, is also the person I can call for prayer and counseling. That is a big part of how they grow spiritually, and they should not be uh, looked down upon because that's a part of how they grow spiritually. That's really, really important to them. Uh, that's the first reason. The second reason most people mention when you ask why they go to a small church is because they matter. Uh, they can have a bigger impact in a small church. Um, there are certain skill sets that don't necessarily fit and can't really be used well in a big church context, but can be used really well and really glorify God and really advance the kingdom in a small church setting. And there's a whole lot of people that f discover that and go, you know, yeah, I can really make a difference here. If I'm if I'm not here, I'm missed. And when I show up, I can make a difference. And that is a really big part of the reason they go is because their their ministry matters in a smaller congregation. Hey, if you're listening right now and you um, participate in a small congregation, if if small church describes the church where you worship, why don't you text me? What's your number one reason? For being a part of and loving your experience in a small church. You can text me at 877-933-2484. We're talking with Pastor Carl Vaders. If you're looking for some equipping in small church ministry, you can find it at carlvaders.com. Um, one of the things that you observe, Carl, about, uh, about the small church is it really is the normative way that most Christians gather. Like most Christians are worshiping today and active and engaged not in megachurches, but in small churches. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, you know, for 2,000 years and counting, uh, most churches have been small. Anywhere from 80 to 90% of churches in the world are small, depending on where people draw the line for small, because small is, of course, a relative term. And easily half of the Christians in the world attend a small uh, a small attendance congregation, so it is normal. We, we've we've got a picture, maybe maybe in America more than most places, because this is where most of the larger and mega churches are. We've got a picture because we can drive by and see the mega church, and we start thinking because it's so visible that it must be normative. It must be just the way things are. But in fact, you could have driven by twenty or thirty small churches that you just didn't notice. Uh, on your on your way to the mega church, so uh, the small church is normative, and in fact, in the places in the world where the where the church is growing, where Christians are actually expanding as a percentage of the population, that happens almost exclusively by the multiplication of smaller venues far more than by the building of larger venues. I like the way that you talk about the cost effective nature of small churches and also sort of like their their uh uh, their portability, like you, they don't take up much space. Um, and so to to have a small church that's kind of on the move um, and can move with uh, with the ministry to which God calls it, that, that's also something that's that's unique about the small church. Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, just this morning I was reading uh, about some statistics about how rent and mortgages have gone up so much in the last couple of years. I think they said in all but one or two states, rents and mortgages have gone up in the last couple of years. Um, so it, but getting a building and getting a larger building is harder than ever. And a smaller congregation can be portable. They can rent, they can use community spaces, they can use shared spaces. 
uh, and they can move when they need to move. They can adapt when they need to adapt. And there are a lot of places around the world, especially where um, where, where Christianity is either either not accepted, maybe even illegal, or certainly places where it's not the it's not the the majority uh, faith system that building a large a congregation, building a large building may be prohibitive and, in fact, may send the entirely wrong message. I've got a friend who's a, a missionary in Japan, and when a Japanese person leaves the faith of their family and becomes a Christian, they, uh, they bring great shame to that family. And the idea that now I'm going to attend a big church on a hill staring down at the city feels completely opposite to the Japanese culture. They, in fact, need to be in a smaller, more humble place that will be far more accepted by the people around them. And there are a lot of cultures and a lot of places where big simply doesn't fit for a lot of different reasons, but small fits everywhere. All right. I am currently on carlvaders.com, and I am exploring this idea that small membership churches really have this unseen burden surrounding Easter. So I want to talk with you about Easter, and I want to talk um, about the unseen burden that small membership churches face related to Easter. And then um, we're going to take a very brief break, and we come back. I just want to talk about preaching around um, Holy Week and Easter. So I'm talking with Carl Vaders. Carl, what's the unseen burden that lots of small churches face surrounding Easter? Well, everybody assumes, and in most cases it's true, that you're going to have maybe your biggest attendance Sunday ever on Easter Sunday, and maybe even from Good Friday through Easter Sunday. But there are a lot of smaller congregations out there that, in fact, don't just not have the big Easter bump, but in fact, they may have one of their lowest attended Sundays on Easter Sunday. Uh, that happened for me for the first 20 years that I was in pastoral ministry in a very in very small congregations. Uh, you know, it's a big Sunday coming up. It's Easter weekend. And so maybe your piano player visits family that weekend, and maybe a couple of your ushers are off with family that weekend. And the next thing you know, you turn around, you go, we don't have a backup for that. We're in a small congregation where if we have an instrumentalist at all and they leave, we don't have a backup at all. And so the next thing you know, you're scrambling to try to do something for Easter when you may have some guests showing up and what you're going to present to them is actually not even your best because some of the people who do the ministry for you are gone that weekend. And then a guest comes, they look around and go, wow, if this is the best they do all year, I'm not coming back here again. When in fact, they don't realize this in fact is us at less than our best because a lot of our folks are gone. And so there's a real struggle for smaller congregations in a lot of places where Easter, in fact, is a very, very difficult weekend for them. Um, we don't see that. We don't emphasize it because, of course, we want to emphasize the wonderful stories of life transformation that happens at so many churches when people do visit for the first time or maybe the only time that year and come to faith in Christ. And we want to honor that. We want to acknowledge it. But I also, because of the people I work with, want to spend some time letting those who are in a place where it's discouraging this weekend, let them know you're seen, you're heard, you're loved, and God is with you even in a difficult season. Amen. All right. We're talking with Pastor Carl Vaders. You can visit him online, carlvaders.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio, and we'll be right back. Returning to our conversation with Pastor Carl Vaders. Carl, let's um let's talk a little bit about preaching this time of year and specifically preaching Easter. 
We've gotten away in our culture from sort of preaching the literal resurrection of Jesus and some of the literal things um, that take place in the life of Christ. You you see the recovery of that is really important. I do. It is absolutely essential to our faith. The Apostle Paul told us that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile, uh, that we are still dead in our sins. Because the Bible tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And if Jesus didn't literally defeat death, then when I die, uh, that can't be defeated either. Death will be the end of us. So I, I, I think we're, I think we're trading down. Uh, some people feel like we're trading up, and it's more noble somehow to see uh, uh, Easter and the resurrection of Jesus merely as a symbol for the renewal of life. Uh, but you can get that kind of symbology in a whole lot of different places. Uh, you don't need to go to the crucifixion and resurrection to get that. So the crucifixion and resurrection doesn't even stand apart from other wonderful regenerative stories if we only see it through a symbolic um, terminology. The, the fact of the matter is, if you take a look at the New Testament narratives, the fact that Jesus physically rose from physical death is the absolute central story that all four Gospels tell when they get to that part of it, and it is absolutely central to the theology of the rest of the New Testament, particularly from the Apostle Paul. There's a temptation, I think, for a lot of people to jump from, you know, Palm Sunday and the events of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to Easter and this, you know, miraculous uh, resurrection experience and all of the glory related to that and skip over the realities of this week. Um, you talk about the need to get wrecked by the cross again. Can you invite us into that experience this Holy Week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I And I completely agree with you, Carmen. I think we we want to get to the positive so desperately, and understandably so, um, that we jump over the middle part. But think about any good movie or even great story that you've ever read. If there isn't a, if there isn't a supreme difficulty to overcome, then the victory at the end is lessened. Uh, and in fact, what happens during this week when we contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus? I'm I'm not one who thinks that we need to spend time sitting morbidly reflecting on every single wound. But the Bible does tell us very clearly about the horrific things that Jesus went through, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that, it, that what he endured was to not just physically, but spiritually also take our sins upon himself in his body and, and to uh, undergo a separation from the Father. And that to me is the, the greatest wound. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the most heartbreaking moment. The physical is horrifying, but that separation is inconceivable. And we need to sit with that for a while. It's important that we understand the, the, what Jesus went through uh, to take our sins upon himself. And if we don't sit with that long enough to really begin to understand that, the, the phrase get wrecked by the cross that you mentioned earlier was actually used by one of the men in our church when we were reading through John again together for a men's Bible study. And I just asked them, how did this reading go this week? And one of them, through trying to hold tears back, just said, I read through that story of the cross and it wrecked me again. I, I could barely read it as it just overwhelmed me. But then because of that, 
when you do get to the resurrection, the joy, the triumph of that becomes so much more meaningful. So we're talking with Pastor Carl Vaders. Um, he has a lot of expertise in small church ministry. He is a pastor and has been for a long time. He also coaches other pastors. He supplies all kinds of innovative small church resources for free at carlvaders.com. Um, Carl, I'm, I'm looking again um, at your website, and one of the things that, um, that I'm noting that you talk about is this how to be a more innovative small church. And I think when we think about innovation, we think about technology, we think about, um, you know, quote unquote, relevancy. You, um, that's actually, I mean, it's what you're talking around, but it's, it, that's not the counsel you're offering. Can you, can you offer up these three really good ways that small congregations and really every congregation can, um, can a- address the need to be innovative? Yeah, absolutely. I think what what you're saying there is really correct. When we hear the word innovative, we think it immediately means technology, and it really doesn't. It, it, we we have this love affair with our technology. We love our devices, but just being on your device that's not innovative. You've got to back away from that, and we've got to start thinking differently. So the three things that I mentioned in there. First of all, um, we need to connect to our, our congregation to the church's innovative heritage. As an example. We have we run a skate park at our church here. We're in California, three miles from the beach, so it's a part of a surf and skate culture. And we opened it up uh, because there, we had a whole bunch of kids skating in our parking lot uh, a few years ago because we had resurfaced the parking lot. And we realized we had a choice. We can either chase them out with a whole bunch of no skateboarding signs, mm-hmm. or we can invite them in by building ramps. And uh, it doesn't take much technology to build a few ramps, but it does take innovative thinking to go, you know what? Let's let the kids know they're coming in. And then I looked through our church's uh, old archives and I found an interview with our founding pastor back in the early 60s when someone was looking uh, to partner with a church to help at-risk youth. They called them juvenile delinquents at the time. Um, Most of the churches turned them down and our founding pastor said, bring the kids in. We want to help the kids. We want to help the troubled youth. And I realized really it's about our attitude and about reframing our thinking. And if we are in a church where maybe we're struggling against a history that feels like it's weighing us down, if you look back into your church's history, you're going to find innovative statements by the pioneers of that congregation. We need to do what our founders, we we need to stop trying to do what our founders did. And we need to think like our founders thought, because people who start churches are innovators and pioneers, and we need to re- uh, reignite that passion again. So that's the first one. The second thing is we got to strip away everything other than Jesus. Um, don't don't think you're ever going to get past Jesus or beyond Jesus. The the best way to be innovative is to go deeper and deeper and deeper into Jesus. The more we know who He is, then the more uh, we can strip everything else away. If you take a look around at the history of the church, you will see that the church of Jesus Christ has been for 2000 years and counting the most innovative and adaptable group of people on the face of the earth. Why? Because truth works everywhere. And uh, it works in any culture. It works in any language. It works uh, in any place uh, that you can imagine because it is the truth. So we go deeper into Jesus. And then thirdly, we need to have more conversations. A lot of us are living in communities that have changed around us, and we haven't recognized how much they've changed. 
And so, so, or we see how they've changed. And so we rail against it. And both of those are losing approaches to not recognize the change around us is a losing approach to only rail against the change around us is a losing approach. Instead, talk to your neighbors, sit down with people and ask them how and why and where and what are they feeling now? And why do they come to decisions different than they used to come to? And as we understand the cry of people's hearts, as we understand how their needs in some ways are different now than others, we will also see the eternal needs that never change and how Jesus always meets those needs. But we'll never get there unless we spend some time listening to them instead of yelling at them. What a delight. Um, Carl Vaders, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you're listening and you want more of this. You can get it at carlvaders.com. Um, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. So as you are um, considering your prayers today. Let me encourage you to add to your prayers the farmers of Ukraine. I know that we have spent um, a lot of energy noting what is happening in the cities of Ukraine, and we have not turned much attention to what is happening across the uh, the farmland. And uh, the New York Times now has a piece surveying the places across uh, Ukraine where Russia has targeted um, farm warehouses and farms and farmers. And so we want to um, we want to lift this up. You, you know, we've noted that Ukraine um, has a has a huge foothold in the grain um, market around the world. And uh, according to this New York Times piece, Ukraine has already lost in the neighborhood of $1.5 billion in grain exports just since the beginning of the war six weeks ago. Uh, The fallout of the war has disrupted supplies not only from Russia and Ukraine to the rest of the world, um, but is creating what um, the United Nations World Food Program is now calling a global food crisis beyond anything we've seen since World War II. So this is going to be a, a developing story as well as we consider Um, how people around the world are going to be fed as this breadbasket of the world is decimated by Russia in this, you know, frankly, senseless war. The voices that you heard uh, when we came back were the voices of Ukrainian refugees in Amsterdam singing praises to the Lord our God during this holy week. Let us be walking with Jesus during this holy week. We invite you to join us in doing so. Uh, reading through the Bible together at MyFaithRadio.com. Lots of wonderful resources there. Um, Invite you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus during these days. Um, It is through the cross that we see everything else. And so let us be people who um, help others see Jesus in these days. Thank you so much for joining us. I would love it if you'd share the program with someone else. You can do so at MyFaithRadio.com or via the Faith Radio app. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.